so we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, and um, one of the one of the things uh, that song reminds me. So uh, it is a very popular song in our household, and uh, whenever we sing it, my kids always say "bum bum" after every line. And so I was just thinking that in my head as we were singing that song. Yeah, you gotta you gotta add that. We gotta add that in. So, anyways, um, so in, for the next two weeks. Uh, in the Gospel of John, we're going to be diving into some pretty deep theological waters. Um, and so one of the things about John that is really, really, frankly, pretty great is uh, the fact that it's a very rich theological book, meaning that, you know, with the Synoptic Gospels, we have Jesus's life. We, we look through, uh, you know, who Jesus was, what did he do, uh, kind of in the order of his life and his earthly ministry. The Gospel of John is a bit unique in that because not only does John give us very specific signs and miracles that reveal who he is so that we would believe, but there's a lot of theology in the Gospel of John and in his writing. And so the rest of this chapter, I'm going to just tell you right now, is pretty theologically rich. And so I say that to prepare you because there's going to be certain doctrines or things that we walk through that are going to feel a little inside baseball at its surface. So if you're unfamiliar with these things, they may seem a little overwhelming. But I, I want to I encourage you that these, although these things might be un, unfamiliar, or maybe they are familiar with, to you if you grew up in church or if you've been around the Bible or you've been around church culture, my goal for the next two weeks is to walk through these passages with a lot of care and to help make these things as tangible as possible. So whether you are a theology nerd, uh, which my wife very much is a theology nerd, or if you're someone who's new to the Bible or new to uh, the culture of the church, my encouragement is that you would walk away understanding what these things are in a very tangible and real way. And what's really cool is that um, Jesus himself and the way he teaches us, I think does so with such clarity and wisdom and understanding. I just, when I read the way Jesus explains these things, it's just, it becomes so much more understandable coming from the words of our Savior. And so uh, this is kind of one more thing before we walk into it. If you guys ever have questions or you want to have a conversation with me about the things that we work through on a Sunday morning, and you're not able to catch me after service, because I know sometimes I'm like a chicken with its head cut off, like just running around and doing other stuff. Um, please, utilize my contact information and don't be afraid to have a conversation with me. I'd love to walk through scripture with people. I love to talk about the word. And so if you ever have questions or want to discuss these things further, not just for the things we're walking through for the next two weeks, but beyond that, please know that my contact information in there is for you and for a purpose. And so please utilize that. If you ever want to have some dialogue outside of Sunday morning, I'd be more than happy to talk with you. So I think the best way to do this is let's dive headfirst into John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. And we've, I've entitled this Divine Authority because we're going to be looking at the authority of Christ and, and why is it that He is above all things and over all things. So verse 19 says this, So Jesus said to, him, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing from His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does... The son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so you may marvel first the father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the father gives life to whom he will for the father judges no one, 
but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to, give, to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray as we walk through this text, God, that you would help us to gain an understanding, Father, of of what is being shared in this passage. There's a lot in this. But one of the most important things is in verse 24, is that those who believe, Father, will have eternal life. And God, I just pray that this morning as we walk through this text and walk through this word, Father, that we would cling on to that. God, that those who believe would have eternal life. And God, that we would understand how Jesus is equal to you. How Jesus is God and how through that he has authority over all things, over life and over death, over sin. And God, how he is above all and worthy of all worship and honor and praise. And God, I pray that we would see that this morning as we read this text. God, help us to understand the things that we may not be able to understand. And God, the things that may remain to a mystery to us, help us to trust you in those mysteries. And Father, I pray that you'd be with me, God, as I walk through this text with the church. And God, we pray that you'd give us ears to listen and hearts to hear. It's your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. So the best way that I believe that we need to walk through this passage this morning is like so. This is going to be for your note takers or those who like to follow along. Um, the first is we're going to look at the structure of the passage. So the, the passage is structured in a very particular way. That is done so for purpose. So we're going to look at the structure of the passage first. The next, we're going to look at the doctrine of the Trinity. So we've talked about that before. We talked about Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. But we're going to do another, another look at the doctrine of the Trinity because it is an essential doctrine to our faith and incredibly important. And so although we've talked about it before, I don't feel like we, we can't not talk about it enough. And the next, we're going to walk through the passage and break that down and then go into application. So that's my game plan this morning. We're going to look at the structure, the Trinity, walk through the passage, and then look at application. So that's my plan for this morning. So first, let's look at the structure of the passage itself. So if you've got your Bibles, some of your Bibles, depending on uh, what translation you use, may have this broken down into... The different paragraphs. So if you, if you read your Bibles and you look at how the, it's, it's broken down in different headings, um, I included verse 30, which for some of your Bibles includes a whole nother heading. 
Uh, the reason why I include verse 30 is because verse 30 still kind of works through what Jesus just walked through in the passage. When Jesus talks about how he is equal to God and the way that that works and presenting this argument to the Pharisees, uh, verse 30 almost serves as this summary statement of everything he just talked about as he goes into a bit more of how he has authority to do things on the Sabbath. And so uh, there's a reason why we're doing all those together. But the passage, if you look at it, is a chiastic shape. And what that means is that there's a centralized verse in this passage sandwiched between things that are repeated uh, with each other. So, for example, verses 19 through 23 Talk about how Jesus is equal with God and over death and life. Talks about how Jesus is judge. And then talks about how Jesus is to be honored, like the Father is honored. And then you have this, this verse 24, which I would call probably the key verse in this. And verse 24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then, on the second half of that, Jesus almost repeats what he says in those first three verses. He talks about how he is over death and life, how he is judge, and how he is to be honored and worshiped and praised. So he does those things to draw us back to this, that we would marvel at who he is and see his authority and equality with God. And so... Why is he doing this? Well, last week, we looked at how Jesus healed a lame man who was sitting by the water wanting to get healed. And it was from that that he, he did that on a Sabbath. And the Pharisees got really mad about that, and they, they sought him out. And Jesus was saying that he has basically authority over the Sabbath. He is wor- he is, his father is working, so he is working, basically saying that he is equal with God. And so the Pharisees, they didn't like that. And we talked about how the Pharisees then at that point plotted to kill Jesus. And that's when his journey to the cross really began in terms of people who put him there. Now, what Jesus does here is he's giving them an explanation of why he can say such a profound statement that he and God are one. So what we're seeing here is Jesus's argument. Why is it that he has divine authority? And like I said this a little bit earlier, I love the way that Jesus teaches with his parables, with the Sermon on the Mount. We've been walking through that on Wednesday night, and I just love how, how practical and how easy to understand Jesus is. The words of Jesus are not meant to be ones that are only understood by a few, but rather Jesus teaches in a way that even the little children should come and know him. And I love that he makes this equality with God, something to be understood, although some of it can still kind of be a mystery to us. And in Philippians chapter two, he talks about how he didn't consider his equality with God as something to be grasped. Now, sometimes we think about that as a, oh, his equality with God is not something that we can fully understand and comprehend. Well, that's, that's kind of true. We, it, some of it remains a mystery to us. And when we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, we can't fully understand all of it to 100% because of our human thinking. However, when he was talking about his equality with God was not something to be grasped, he wasn't saying that it's so high level that we can't understand the basics of it. No. 
he didn't use that to his advantage. He didn't use his equality with God to make life easier on earth. He still suffered. He still experienced pain. He lived as a servant and died for you and for me. He did so with humility. That's what he was meaning with that. So as we walk through this text, I think it's also important for us to understand what the Trinity is. So let's walk through the Trinity next. <laughs> now, uh, I, when, I'm, when I'm looking at the doctrine of the Trinity, you're going to notice I might be reading from my iPad a little bit more on this one, and here's why. One, I don't want to commit blasphemy by <laughs> saying something wrong. When it comes to the Trinity, um, I have written, I've had to write a lot of papers for seminary and had to do other things, even for my counseling courses uh, on the Trinity and, and, and trying to make it as tangible as possible. I felt like I should probably just try to get the best definition I can for it and read it to you guys and then walk through it a little bit further. And here's what's really cool is the Trinity may seem like this, this really high uh, intellectual concept in scripture, but really, if you are a believer and you have become a Christian, you already have all the tools in your tool belt to understand what the Trinity is. So let's walk through it. So here's the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is that there is one God in three persons, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. God is three distinct persons, but is not separate. Each person of the Trinity is God, but each person of the Trinity is not one another. For example, God the Father is God, and God the Son is God. But God the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. However, both are God. Human analogies can't quite describe what the Trinity is, and any use of human imagery fails to fully grasp what the Trinity is and how it functions. For example, uh, we have used the, the analogy of water. The Trinity is like water because water is vapor, ice, and water. The, the problem with that analogy is, though, is that uh, it's only one of those things at a time. It can't be all three at the same time functioning independently while also being the same. It's, it's, it's hard to grasp that. Or uh, the Trinity is, this is actually my first exposure to like an earthly representation of the Trinity was a banana. If you poke a banana the right way, it splits into three exact even pieces. But the problem with that analogy is that it makes God a megazord from Power Rangers, right? When they all come together, they all form one big megazord to defeat the enemy. But that's not what God is. God isn't three people that are separate that come together to form God. It, they are all individual persons, but they are all still fully God. So that doesn't work. And we could run down the list of all these different human analogies to try to go through. For example, like the, the titles that I hold, I'm a pastor, a husband, a son, a father, a brother. I am all those things at the same time, but I'm still Dustin. But the problem with that is that still falls short into what the Trinity truly is. So the problem is there's, there's not a human analogy we can really come up with to fully grasp the, the fullness of what the Trinity is. And that's okay. Part of the, the, the mystery of the Trinity is that our human minds can only comprehend so much because we only think in a finite way. But God is infinite. And He is beyond that. And we may be able to, be able to understand the generalities of the Trinity even though we don't understand the full working depths of it, that's okay. So as we walk through this a little bit further, when we look at the, when we look at the Trinity, 
even in the doctrine of the Trinity, it's one that we don't fully understand every aspect due to the limitations of our mind and human understanding. But what we do see all over Scripture is what the Trinity is and how the Trinity functions. We never see the word Trinity, but we see it in what it is and how it functions in the evidence of God's Word. We gave that doctrine in the name because of the Godhead three in one. That's what Trinity means. Now, this may seem complex, and part of this mystery to us is that uh, when we go to be with the Lord, maybe we'll learn a little bit more. Um, so, however, when I shared this a little bit earlier, you have the tools already to understand what the Trinity is and to understand how it functions. So here's, here's what I mean by that. We see what the Trinity is and how the Trinity works in the gospel. So here's how that works. The Father sent the Son to die for our sins, both being God, but they function the Father, the Son, separately. The Father sent the Son because we all have fallen short of the glory of God, and we cannot save ourselves from our sin. It's through the Son that we are able to be reconciled for our sins, and we no longer face God the Father's wrath. And upon salvation, the Holy Spirit, being the third person of the Trinity, dwells in us to aid in our sanctification and draw us closer to God. So even just in the gospel itself, we see the Trinity at work. You have all the tools in your tool belt, but we just have to put them together. So God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God, and they were all there in the beginning, just like we saw in John chapter 1 months ago. Now, we have that understanding. We, can all, we all understand and, and can see that God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is our separate persons, but all God. So now let's get into the passage and see Jesus's argument for how he is equal with God. So if you look at verses 19 to 20, for example, Jesus talks about his relationship between the, the, himself and the Father. Now, when we read this passage, it seems like, oh, what is Jesus saying here? Because he says in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. We read that and we go, hang on, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Because Jesus says he's equal with God. What does this mean? Well, when we read later on, he says, For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you will marvel. Now here's what Jesus is teaching. He's not saying that he really cannot do anything without the Father. Rather, what he's trying to help us to understand is how their relationship is unique. Right? This isn't, this isn't Jesus saying that God the Father is my Father and he shows me how to fish and so then I learn how to fish. Or he takes me out hunting and shows me how to hunt, and so now I know how to hunt. It's not that kind of father-son relationship. Instead, they are more in sync, meaning that they both work in tandem together. Here's, how that, here's kind of how that looks and what I think about when I, when I was reading this passage. Um, how many of you have uh, Bluetooth in your car? Raise your hand if you got Bluetooth in your car. Okay, so quite a few of you. So uh, we have Bluetooth in both of our vehicles. One is really good and one is terrible. So we have our, our minivan. I love our minivan. It's awesome. It's got like a little mini fridge cooler thing. And I used to not be on the minivan train, but now I'm like, I will have a minivan for life. Those things are awesome. You can move the seats out. When, whenever your car looks like a crime scene, it's super easy to clean up. And when you have children, it only takes a few days for that to happen. 
But <laughs> anyways, they're, they're, they're awesome and they're great. I love them. Uh, and the doors just slide out. They don't have to open them and hit people. Anyways, so uh, the thing about our, our minivan is we have a Bluetooth radio, but it's terrible. It functions, sure, but it delays really bad. So if you plug your phone into it and you start playing a song, you press the play button and there's probably a good three second delay until something actually happens. And you may be thinking to yourself, that's not that bad. But here's how long three seconds is. One, two, three. It seems a lot longer than, than you would think, isn't it? Especially when you're trying to play music for kids. Or if you're trying to pause something and answer the phone, like it, it takes forever to pause. So anyways, when, whenever we are looking at this passage, Jesus, the Son, and the Father don't work like our minivan does. It's not that God the Father does one thing and then God the Son goes, oh, that's how you do it, and then does it. No, instead, they work much more seamlessly together. They are way more in sync. And then he tells the Pharisees this, that they will see much greater things than the healing of this invalid man. See, Jesus is telling them, what you're seeing now, this is, this is nothing for what's coming in the future. And when we look at this gospel a little bit more, we see Jesus doing way more miraculous things than healing of one man. In fact, if you look at the next chapter, when we get into chapter 6, that's when Jesus feeds the 5,000. That's when Jesus walks on water. It just continues to increase over and over again. And then Jesus beats death and is risen from the dead. And he raises Lazarus from the dead later on too. So, I mean, there's a lot that's about to happen. And so Jesus does these things not to just show off or not to show that he is God in the flesh only, but he does so so that they would marvel. He, he does so so that they would see his divinity and believe. There's purpose to these miracles. He does so for his glory and for his power and for us to trust him in that. And so when we look at verses 21 through 23, he gives a little bit more information to the Pharisees as to what does this relationship look like even more? And he addresses that, that Jesus is over life and death, and he is also judge over sin. So he goes further by talking about his equality with Father, by saying that he is not only the Lord over life and death, just as God is, or he is over life and death, just as God is. And not only is he over life physically, as we saw in John chapter 1, as he was over creation, but he is over life spiritually. You know, when we talk about salvation, for example, we understand that we are not the ones who save ourselves. Jesus saves us. Just as Jesus is over life and death physically, Jesus is over life and death spiritually. And in verse 22, we see Jesus in a little bit of a different light. Light, he refers to himself as the one whom the Father entrusts for judgment. Now, this makes a lot of sense when we think about it, because Jesus is the one who saves us from our sins. He is the one who reconciles us with God. And so if he's able to do that, he is the only one who can truly judge us for our sins, the one who pays it on our behalf. And Jesus, like God, being over life and death, Jesus is able to raise people from the dead. Lazarus, as we see a little bit later on, we see that Jesus being over life and death, Jesus being 
the judge. The purpose of all of these things is that the Father and the Son would both be honored. Because when you think of God and you think of what God is over, oftentimes we think of life and death. Because we have a lot of things that we control in our life, right? Like maybe you control how much you eat or how much you spend or uh, how much water you drink or what medicines you take. To a degree, you have this level of, of responsibility in your life that you care for. But when it comes to life and death, we, we don't control that, right? We never know when our day is coming. We can't plan that. We can't know that definitively. It just happens. And if you've lived long enough, you've had people in your life that have been suddenly taken from you with no explanation and no information to, to back that up. And so what Jesus is telling these Pharisees is that you believe that God is over life and death. You believe that God is all of these things. I do those things too. He's trying to get them to understand that he is not just equal with God in some things. He's equal with God in all things. And then he tells them this, because here's what the Pharisees are doing. The Pharisees are dishonoring him. The Pharisees are trying to kill Jesus. The Pharisees don't like what he's teaching. The Pharisees don't like who Jesus is. And what Jesus is telling them is that if you want to honor God, you also have to honor me. If you want to honor God, the Father, you also have to honor God, the Son. And you can't just honor God, the Son, and not honor God, the Father. They are one in the same. And what these Pharisees are doing is they're saying, well, we love God, but we hate you. And that is blasphemy. You can't do that because God, the son and God, the father are one and the same. And in honoring him, we marvel at who Jesus is. Now we get to the key verse in all this verse 24 and verse 24 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now what Jesus is doing is he's telling them the gospel that for those who believe have eternal life, for those who trust in Jesus have eternal life with him, that they pass from death into life. Yes. Are they still going to die physically? Absolutely. We all are but they don't perish eternally. They get to be with God forever, both in heaven and on the new heaven and new earth when that happens. So this is eternal life. This is the key verse in all of this. And this is the one sometimes we miss. Jesus saying how he is equal with God, all these things being understood for those that believe this truth, they will have eternal life. What that means is that just as we submit ourselves to God and trust that he is over all things and has authority over all things, we also trust that Jesus has authority over all things. He has authority over life and death. He has authority to judge us for our sins. He has authority to save us from our sins. He has authority over all things and he is in control of all things. And by him, all things are held together. Colossians chapter one. Jesus is worthy to be worshiped, honored, and praised. And when we say that we believe in Jesus, it's not just a, a matter of believing that God raised him from the dead. It's truly submitting to his lordship, submitting to his authority, saying that my life does not belong to myself, but it belongs to you, Jesus. That's what it means to be saved and have a relationship with him. So what happens next? Because I said this was a chiastic 
shape, right? How is this repeated in verses 25 through 29? Well, if you see these verses, here's what you're going to find. Is that Jesus is driving home this point that he and the Father are one by basically repeating exactly what he just said. That he has the power over life. He was sent by the Father to dwell on earth among men. The Son is able to enact judgment, and the Son is worthy of all worship and honor and praise. We look at Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. We see Paul teaching about how uh, Jesus was, humi- was humble, that being equal with God, he still lived as a servant, he lived as a man, and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then, in verse 9, he says this, and I don't have this on the screen, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you either remember this or turn to Philippians chapter 2. Because in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, he says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Jesus that we serve and love and submit our lives to. This is the Jesus who is over all things. This is the Jesus who lived a perfect life that you and I couldn't. And this is the Jesus who loves you. And then in in uh, chapter 5, he gives this very, uh, what seems strange in verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We're looking at what happens at the end of this earth. There's going to come a point where there's going to be the resurrection of the dead and those who have died will be given new glorified bodies to live on the new heavens and new earth. And we're not going to get into all that right now because that is a whole other set of sermons. But Jesus is over life and death, not just back then and not just now, but beyond in the future. And this doing good or doing evil has nothing to do with their actions or works, but rather what it has to do with is whether they submitted their lives to Jesus or not. That's where the good and evil comes from, not from the works of man, but from the works of the Messiah. And then verse 30, we have basically what what I'm going to call a summary statement of everything that Jesus just gave. I kind of think of this as Jesus giving his argument over a court and trying to give a witness to who he is and why he's able to claim the things he's claiming. And in verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, being God the Father. So what do we have to learn from all this? How can we take this and apply it? Because I know that with very deep theological things, it can be kind of hard to see, well, how do I take that home? What What are some ways that I can practically live that out in my own life. I entitled this message divine authority for a reason because Jesus shares all these things, not just so they would marvel, but that they would submit to him just as they claim to submit to God. And that Jesus has authority over life, death, and sin. So what's the first thing we can do with this? Though the first thing to understand from this is that to reject Jesus is to reject God. To reject God 
is to face eternal punishment for sins. And there's a lot of faiths, or I would call faiths, religions is probably more of a correct term, that believe in God, but don't believe in Jesus. And unfortunately, those who believe in that are missing the mark. The second thing we can learn from this is that we can trust Jesus because who he is. Jesus doesn't just walk to walk. He doesn't just claim to be God and do nothing to show it. He shows it all throughout his word. And what's really cool about it is he actually, at one point, shares with the disciples how throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, all these things that happened were pointing to him. Um, I, stayed, I stayed a little bit afterwards in the Sunday school class this morning, and I heard somebody make a comment about how they loved seeing all these connections in in Genesis, all the way to the New Testament, and seeing how all these things are connected. We have to understand these aren't just two separate books slapped together, the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are all one overarching narrative of God's redemptive work in our lives and in, in His love for us. This book all works together to show the glory of God and the, the, just the wonders of who Jesus is. When we look at the Old Testament, we see so many signs pointing to Jesus and pointing to the truths that we see in the New Testament. So to reject Jesus is to reject God. We can trust Jesus because who he is. And the last thing for us to take home this morning is that Jesus has authority over our lives and over all things. So my question for you this morning as we have our time of invitation, as as Jackie comes up and, and sings for us, is do you trust the one who is deserving of authority, of worship and worthy in praise? Do you trust this truth that Jesus is God? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead? Do you believe that he is in charge of your life? And I know I say that kind of strange, but it really is a pretty simple truth. Is Does your life belong to yourself or does it belong to Jesus? There really is no in-between. Because to to reject Jesus is to reject God and to face eternal punishment. And so this invitation this morning, this is a chance for you to respond. If you have questions about this or what it means to truly be saved or what does it mean to truly believe, I'd be more than happy to have a conversation with you. Maybe the person who invited you here or someone else you're close to in the church will be happy to talk you through that. But this is a time to respond and a time to pray, and also too, if you are struggling with things in your life, maybe maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you struggle to understand how Jesus can be over all things, my encouragement for you would be to pray and ask that not only would God's will be done, but that God would increase your trust in Him in every aspect of your life, from your health to your future, to your finances, whatever it may be, and that you would study his word and just see how his hand is over all things. Will you pray with me this morning as we have our invitation? Lord, I thank you for today. God, I thank you for your son. I thank you that he has authority, God, as you have authority. God, I pray that you would help us in the times where we may struggle with our belief. In the times where we struggle with your authority, in the times where we struggle that, that we want control of our lives, but God, we know ultimately you are in control. Father, I pray that you'd help us to trust you. 
God, I pray that you'd help us to trust you in both the good seasons and the bad. God, that we would not lean to our own understanding, but that we would lean on you. And Father, that your spirit would reveal these truths and mysteries to us. Jesus, I thank you for the way that you walk through this scripture with the Pharisees. I thank you for your word that is tangible. I thank you for your word that is understandable. God, I thank you for your word that is living and still works in us today. So we pray for this time of invitation for those who would would like to have prayer or to respond. And God, I pray that they wouldn't just let this moment go. And and God, that they would, if they have questions or they need prayer, Father, they would reach out. If they don't feel confident to come forward, God, that they they would do so after service or at another time this week. God, that they would not let questions pass by unanswered. And God, that they would not let prayer be unspoken. Father, I pray they would lift those things up to you, God, as we gather as a body, as we pray together, and God, seek to serve you together. It's your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen.